Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, That's good. That's just to there. So how many of you have heard this verse before? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've, we've all heard it. We've all heard it preached and taught. And this is a verse that has been used to teach wives that we're subordinate, that we're supposed to submit. And it does literally say, I'm not going to try to justify it. It says, whether you're looking at it in English, whether you're looking at it in Greek, it says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But now can you read verse 21, which is conveniently in a separate section, but it's how the section before ends. Submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Or okay. submitting. Submit to one another out of the fear of Christ. And then he specifically says, wives, submit to your husbands. So in other words, God has a plan for the family. God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. And so in the home, in the family, he's explaining that wives should submit to their husbands. Well, you can't submit if you're not equals, Right? It's not submission if you're not equal. So he's saying, even though you have been empowered in the church, because what was happening in the first century of the church is that it was a very patriarchal culture. The ancient Near East, the women weren't even a lot of times allowed to leave the house. And when the church came, all of a sudden, they're having joint meetings. They're all together worshiping in one place. The women are allowed to sit and be taught. They're called disciples. And it was completely revolutionary. It was scandalous. And so he's reiterating and saying, we need there to be order. Order in the family and order in the house of God. And we know this because he literally says in verse 21, the same thing that he tells the women, he tells everyone. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it doesn't say submit because you're the weaker partner. Submit because you're lesser. It says submit out of reverence for Christ. So that's what we do as women is we submit out of reverence for Christ. And this is where we're going to get into today knowing your worth, but also knowing your context. And specifically to know your context, you have to know the context of scripture. So a little bit of context about me. The reason I'm teaching this class is because my husband organizes this event and my husband asked me to teach. My husband is also the one who pushed me to go to seminary. My husband is also the one who encouraged me to become a pastor. My husband is also the one who challenged me to go and get my doctoral degree. So I come, I know Greek, I know Hebrew, I've been pastoring for 20 years, and all of that is in partnership and through encouragement with my husband. So that's the context of this class. Uh, So as we get in, uh, there's going to be three main passages that we look at. We're going to start with these three main passages and why, why they're troublesome. These are the texts that tend to be proof-texted and used to, dis, uh, to discriminate against women in ministry. The first one is in 1 Corinthians 11. And I'll just turn there. So 1 Corinthians 11, give you a second to read there. 1 Corinthians 11... Starting in verse 3, it says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head 
was shaved. So this is, again, one of the troublesome verses that explains that women are subordinate, that men are the head. um, But it also says that Christ is the head of man. And if you'll notice here in this verse, men and women are actually treated equally. The only thing that's talked about is the head covering. Both men and women can pray. Both men and women can prophesy. So they're placed on equal footing. He just says that men and women are different. And when, he, when you read the rest of this text, it talks about it is though her head was shaved. And in verse 7, um, it, it says that the, or verse 6, it says that she should, her hair is given as a glory. Um, her glory is a covering for her. And in verse 11, this is the key thing. It says, this is what I want to drive home because we can get distracted. There are scriptures that talk about how we're not supposed to have braids, how we're not supposed to wear jewelry. um, And those have to be taken in the cultural context of the time at which scripture was written. So let's hone in. He gives all of these cultural contexts. But the part that we need to catch is in verse 11. It says, in the Lord. In the Lord, however... Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Do you hear that? So the first section, he's talking about culturally how women have long hair as a covering. In that time, women were actually supposed to wear uh, cloth coverings. But he says your hair alone is enough of a covering. If it's a, if it's a disgrace for women to shave their head, then the women should have long hair. And I'm not talking about, it just means that women and men, we should not become androgynous. We should not look the same. There should be a difference between the feminine and the masculine. That's what he's saying. And his point is, but we know we can submit to this command. We know that we can submit to this custom because in the Lord, in the Lord, we all are part of Christ. In the Lord, we are all the same. So uh, Galatians 3.26, this is a key verse just to reiterate this. Galatians 3.26, some of you may be familiar with this. Uh, I'm sorry, it's actually verse 28. Verse 28, Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, Male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So again, revolutionary, countercultural. He is saying not only is there no male or female, but he says there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. He is making the point we are all one in Christ Jesus. So before the eyes of God, we are equally made in the image of God. Before the eyes of God, we are equally called. We are equally anointed. We are equally saved by his grace and forgiven by the blood of Jesus. So this is the first text, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven three 3 being a troublesome text. The second one is 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 30, 34 and 35. And keep in mind, this is the same book. So the first text that we looked at was also from 1 Corinthians. So without getting into the historical detail, I would just tell you, this is written to a specific church who's struggling with specific things. And so he's addressing out of the 66 books of the Bible, these three texts that we're going to look at come from two books out of the 66. And they were written to a certain people in a certain time. That does not mean it does not apply to us, but it does mean that we have to take those historical things into consideration. So 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. It says, women should remain silent 
in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but they must be in submission as the law says. All right. Now, where do we go with this one? Right. Where do we go with this one? Well, we just read from the same author from Paul. He says that women, maybe with their long hair, with a head covering, can pray and prophesy. Right. They can pray and prophesy. This text at the top, if you're looking at your Bible, it talks about orderly worship. So what he's talking about here, he gives commands that if someone has a hymn or a prophecy or a word in tongues, there has to be someone to interpret. If there's someone who's prophesying, the first prophet must sit down and then there's a new prophet. He's talking about how the order of service should run. So you can't quote that verse without quoting the second verse, which is verse 35. It says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. And what is happening here is that, again, women had not historically been educated. They historically had not been in the church. They were not allowed to sit in a joint. Um, they, you know, women were always separated from men. And so now you're in a setting where you have women who don't know scripture. They have not been taught. They don't even know how to read. And they've been welcomed into this congregation. And they're disrupting the service. They're asking questions because they don't understand. So what he's talking about here is not that women cannot participate, but he's saying if you have questions, don't disrupt the service, but ask your questions, save your questions for a time at home. So this verse is used as 34 without looking at the larger text, without looking about the fact of the cultural time. There's also the added layer that in that time, the average lifespan of a man was 50. The average lifespan of a woman was only 30. So when you're looking at the congregation, usually men who were in their 30s married girls who were 12 to 15 years old. So you're looking at a congregation where you have mostly men who are in their 30s and you have teenage girls. So there's this disruptiveness that's happening in the congregation. And Paul is trying to teach them, you need to have order. The services cannot be chaotic. You can't have everybody all talking at the same time. And if we don't look at that context, we miss that. So the third text that's a troublesome text is we're going to look at 1 Timothy. And this kind of goes together. We'll, we'll look at them a little bit backwards. 1 Timothy 3 and then 1 Timothy 2. So we're not going to read 1 Timothy 3, but this is something that is often used. It talks about the, the requirements for overseers and deacons. And consistently through that text, it talks about overseers and deacons being a man of but one uh, wife, um, how he needs to be sober, how he needs to have integrity and manage his household. And so it's taught that women should not be overseers and that women should not be deacons. However, if you go to Romans 16, Romans chapter 16, this is just one example. There's other examples of scripture, but I'll take you there. Romans chapter 16, verse 1 says, I command, I commend to you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centria. That word servant is diakonos. The word diakonos means deacon. But for some reason, because it's a woman, this verse has been translated to say that Phoebe is a servant. But the word in 1 Timothy is diakonos, which is a deacon. So Paul writes in 1 Timothy 
And Paul writes in Romans, and he uses the same word both to describe men and women. So what you have here is that when Paul is talking about the requirements for a deacon, he's using the dominant, which is the male terms, but he's not excluding women from becoming deacons. It is well documented in archaeology and in the early church that there were many, many women who were involved as leaders, deacons, um, they preached, they did all the, all the offices of the church, they were part of it. So we don't want to misuse this text. We have to look at the larger context of what scripture says. Another example, which is also from Romans 16, is in verse, uh, where'd she go? Verse 7. It says, Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So the name Junius is actually Junia. There is no name of Junius that is known in the Greek. It doesn't exist. The name is actually Junia, and it was a very common, kind of like the name Julia, it was an extremely common female name. And the part that's troublesome here is it says that they were outstanding among the apostles. The way that it's written is that Junia was actually an apostle. Now, how can that be? Anyone have an idea or an answer? <clears throat> so 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, I'll read you this and it will start to make more sense. It talks about how after Christ was raised, he appeared to different people. So this is 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 4. It says that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Okay, so the original apostles in the early church were known as the twelve. And then it says, after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So first of all, Paul is an apostle. He was not part of the 12. And it already specifically said when he appeared to the 12, it says he appeared to the 12. So our misunderstanding is the fact that there were additional apostles. The word apostle simply means one who is sent. That's all it means is one who is sent. And the requirement we know from Acts chapter one is that in order to be an apostle, you had to be around the ministry of Jesus. You had to be a witness of his resurrection and those were the requirements to be known as an apostle. And you had to be discipled by Jesus enough to be sent out to be valid to proclaim the gospel. So there is a very good possibility, based on the way that Romans 16 names Junia, that Junia was actually an apostle. How cool is that? How amazing is that? Um, the next person that I want to look at is, um, she's also named in Romans 16, verse 3. It says, Greet Priscilla and Achilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. If you go to Acts chapter 18, verse 26, what you actually see is that there's a man named Apollos. And my husband mentioned earlier that some people followed Paul, some people followed Apollos. And there was some division in the church uh, because an, Apollos was a great theologian. He was a, a speaker and well-known preacher in the early times. But what you see in chapter 18 of Acts is that Priscilla and Aquila actually sit down Apollos and they correct his teachings. 
they helped him know more rightly the word of truth. And so you can go to that text and you can read it and you see that Priscilla was actually teaching and instructing a man in the word of God. And out of the six times that they appear in scripture, Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla is named first, which was the role of honor. So out of the two of them, Priscilla was actually the primary minister who was operating in that ministry. Because typically the man would be named first and the woman would be named second. But for this couple, Priscilla is consistently named first. Then in Colossians 4.15, there's a woman mentioned whose name is Nympha. And her, she's given the title of patron, which the, that's the closest thing to shepherd. As a side note, the word pastor only appears in the New Testament one time. One time and one time alone. And it has no description of what a pastor's job is. So the word pastor just means shepherd. But Nympha is named as a patron. In other words, she was the shepherd over the church that meets in her house. So we see here, even the closest thing we can come up with, which would be a pastor, that Nympha was fulfilling that role. So we see there's no definition. But the word caruso, which means preaching, is never forbidden. Even in Paul's writings, there's no, no prohibition against women being able to preach. So we see that women have preached, they've taught, they've led, they were an integral part of the early church in spite of some of these verses that have been used to proof text and discredit women in ministry. We even see the, the revolutionary that in John chapter 20, when Christ resurrects, the first person that he talks to is Mary Magdalene. And he tells her, go and tell the disciples. So the very first person to preach the good news of the resurrection, the very first person was Mary Magdalene, and she went to the male disciples, and she told them boldly the word of truth. Now, granted, they probably didn't believe her, <laughs> but she did it. She was specifically sent by Christ to do that. This last troublesome text, so we're going to go through this verse, and then I want to get into the larger testimony of Scripture, because I don't want us to spend all of our time just unpacking the negative things that have been said. I want us to look at the overarching narrative of what Scripture has to say and about women in Scripture and what we are called to do. So the last troublesome one we're going to look at is back again in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And you're going to hear this sounds very much like what we read in 1 Corinthians. But it will make sense in a second because you have to know context. So verse 11 says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. Now this next part is, is going to, it seems really random, but it's going to make sense in a, in a few minutes. It says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay, so first of all, let's unpack the fact that women are saved through childbearing. That is not the gospel. So Paul is trying to say something 
Paul would never say, he knows that we're all saved by grace. We're all saved by what Christ did on the cross through his death and resurrection. We're all under the grace and mercy of God. We're not saved by bearing children. So there's something that is happening here that the red flag should go off on us, that we should say, let me take a step back and let me understand. Like I said, this session is about knowing your context, knowing the context. So if you turn to Acts chapter 19... Acts chapter 19, Paul is in a town called Ephesus. And this is important because what you actually see is that Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. He was a young man who took over the ministry and he was shepherding over the people in Ephesus. So in order for us to know the context, we have to understand the city of Ephesus. And when you look at Acts chapter 19, when Paul is in Ephesus, Ephesus was the center of a cult the cult of Artemis. And I want to read this to you because what happens in Ephesus is that so many people started becoming believers that it creates issues in the town because the people who made the idols stop having business. So they get upset because they're no longer able to make money. So they decide that they're going to go against the apostles. And he says, we're going to read, so that those who were accusing them says this, this is his accusation. There is a danger, this is, I'm sorry, verse 27. There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Okay, Artemis was considered a mother goddess. The only people who could serve in her temple, the only ones who could serve as priests, were women. The theology of the cult of Artemis was that mother goddess created all people. The mother goddess was the source of all life. Women were, in fact, superior to men. So you have new believers now who are coming out of the cult of Artemis. And Paul has to specifically say, Adam was formed first, then Eve, not the other way around. And when you read most of 1 Timothy, he's talking about all of these false teachers. He's talking about all of these people who are coming into the church and creating confusion. And so he's saying the women in this town cannot teach that. That is idolatry and it has no place in the church. And the other key about this is where he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. The word authority is authentane in Greek. And authentic only appears once in all of scripture. So this does not just say to have leadership. It does not just say to have authority. Authentic means to dominate. It means to domineer. And what the women were doing is they believed they were superior. And so they were trying to dominate the men in the congregation. And he's telling them, while you have a place at the table, you are not allowed to be superior. You are not allowed to dominate over the men in the church. There is order in the church of God. So that is the text of 1 Timothy. And to reiterate this, because he talks about Adam and Eve, and he talks about Eve being a sinner, this is where we're going to start to get to the larger narrative of what Scripture says. So we're going to go to Genesis, if you have your Bible. We'll sit here briefly. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says, God created man 
in his own image. And the word there for man is mankind. And don't trust me on that. You can look in the Hebrew. And the way you also know is that when Hebrew makes a point, he makes the point three times in order to reiterate what he's trying to say. So it says, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So he's, what he's saying here is that both men and women are equally made in the image of God. Do we look different? Do we function differently? Yes, but we are equally made in the image of God. One is not less than the other. If you go to chapter 2, it says that the Lord, this is verse, chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone, right? So I will make a helper suitable for him. Well, the Hebrew word for helper is ezer, E-Z-E-R. And other places throughout scripture, the word ezer is actually deliverer. And it's used to describe God, God himself, that God will be my deliverer. So this is not someone who was created to serve Adam. This is someone who was in some way meant to help deliver Adam. And remember, right before this, God plants the tree and he gives Adam the first command. And he says, do not eat of the tree or you will die. And after he said that everything in creation was good, at this part, he says, it is not good for man to be alone. Because when man is alone, when he's isolated, he's going to fall into sin. And God already knows that. So he says, I'm going to create a counterpart so that there's accountability. There's a counterpart for accountability. And, and here's, here's the, the, one of the most beautiful things. And you see in chapter 3 the fulfillment of this. The serpent comes to Eve and he tempts Eve. And we're going to look at this. He says, you know, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, right? She also gave some to her husband who was with her. He's not somewhere else. She doesn't go and bring him the fruit. He's literally standing right next to her and he lets her eat the fruit first just to see what happens. (laughs) It's normal. It's normal, right? But, but what happened after Eve ate of the fruit? What happened? She eats the fruit, and she gives it to her husband. But what happened? Absolutely nothing. Nothing happens. And it says, it says, who was with her, and he ate it. After Adam eats the fruit, in verse 7 it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So the woman was an act of grace. She eats the fruit. She was deceived, but nothing happened. She gives Adam a second chance. Only when the full image of God, both male and female, fall into sin, does humanity fall into sin. And this gives us context when the New Testament says that through Adam, death came. Through Adam, the first Adam, sin came into the world. But through the second Adam, through Christ, we have the resurrection power and we have the forgiveness of sins. So the writers of the the scriptures, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, they knew this. They understood this. But over time, we've lost these things. They've kind of faded into the background of tradition. So we've looked at those texts, those three primary texts that discredit women in ministry. 
But now we're going to just really briefly shoot through the women who have a testimony for us and set an example for us in Scripture. So we'll stick in Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. After the sin comes into the world, in chapter 3, verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the seed, the promised seed, the promised Messiah is not promised to come through Adam. The seed, the promised Messiah is going to come through the woman, through the seed of the woman. And we see that with Eve, but we also see that with Sarah. We always talk about the the Jewish people being the, the children of Abraham, right? Well, Abraham had a son with Hagar. After Sarah dies, Abraham has children with multiple concubines and other wives. But the only child who the line was passed through, God makes it specifically clear that the son of the promise is going to come through Sarah. So Sarah is just as important, if in some ways not even more important, than Abraham. So when we talk about the children of Abraham, we're really talking about the children of Sarah, is what we're talking about here. Then if you go to Exodus, again, just moving through scriptures, you see in Exodus that you have, you have the sister of Moses is a prophet. In Judges chapter 4, you have a woman named Deborah who was a judge of the land. She was the leader. In fact, she was even a military leader. She kind of makes fun of the men around her for it. Uh, but she, she wasn't a leader because there were no men around. She was chosen as a leader because of her authority and her wisdom. And she leads and rules. The, the people of Israel actually cry out for, for God's help, for God to send them someone to help them through the oppression that they're facing. And God sends Deborah. Then in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 14, during a time when there were legendary prophets like Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Micah, Amos, Josiah finds the books of scripture and he doesn't know what to do with it. And he sends for a prophetess named Huldah. Huldah is a very obscure person in scripture, but Huldah was a prophetess. So instead of seeking these other prophets and these giants, the Josiah, the king, goes to Huldah for wisdom. And out of the wisdom that Huldah brings, the entire nation of Judah gets a revival. You see this most incredible turnaround in the, in the land of Judah, because the people listened to the wisdom of the prophet Huldah. Then also we see in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, verse 41, the first person in scripture who was filled with the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 1 was Elizabeth. When Mary came to her and was pregnant, it doesn't just say that the baby left in her womb. It says that she was filled with the Holy Spirit. So the first person that God decides to pour his Holy Spirit into in the New Testament is actually Elizabeth. And the last verse that I want to share with you, because again, there's, there's many, many more, is Acts chapter 2, 17 and 18. This is just a beautiful verse. And if you have any doubt or any questions at this point, verse 17 and 18 says this. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. As a side note, Philip, who we also know, preached to Samaria and he speaks to the eunuch and he was a man of God. He had four daughters who were all prophetess. And that it's talked about in the book of Acts. But focusing on this verse, it says, Even on my servants, diakonos, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. What chapter is this? This is Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. So, so, so what? Well, in the context of biker ministry, we know, especially when you're ministering to one percenters, there's certain boundaries. So we need to know our context. You don't come in guns blazing, right? You have to submit in a given context. There's cultural norms in which you need to operate in order to be a testimony and not discredit the gospel. But it shouldn't define your worth. It doesn't mean that you are less than. It doesn't mean that you're subordinate. It doesn't mean that you, you are called, ladies. You are chosen by God. You are anointed by his Holy Spirit, and he does not want you to hold that back. He has a purpose for your life, and if you just sit back and let the men lead, if you just sit back, you are burying your talents. You are burying the gifts, and you'll stand before the Lord, and you can't just say, well, the men told me I couldn't do it. You have to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. You have to be obedient to who God made you to be. And you are made in his image. You are made in his likeness. He has called you to serve. He has called you to lead. He has called you to be prophetic. He has called you to be sent. He has called you to teach. He has called you to preach. He has called you to do all of these things so that the gospel would be spread to all nations. So are you all ready to do that? I hope that you're encouraged. I hope that you see this as a biblical context for women in ministry, not something that I'm speaking out of my own opinion, but something that you can know your worth, but also know your context. That's it.